It's too bad I have to go behind him and clean up his mess all the time, Rob, but uh, that's what I'm here for. I, uh, Joy asked me in the back, who was our service director, she said, do you have any interviews today? I said, I doubt it, because today's topic is on self-righteousness. Does anybody want to volunteer for this interview? Um, <clears throat> this is one of Jesus's strong pushes. It, it's, what you'll feel is what, how Luke is laying out uh, the teachings of Jesus. And this is, we've been in a very big section of where Jesus is teaching. There's the narrative of Jesus where we're hearing about him going from place to place, and you'll hear about healings and different things like that. And then these are very strong teachings of Jesus happening here. And so in, in chapters 13 through 15, that would be the topic, or the, the chapters that I would maybe yourself personally read this this week and read this theme that you see happening that Luke is laying out. And it's this theme of self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is worthlessness to God. And so he begins to push, but you're going to see, we'll focus today, right around in chapter 14, there's three big stories that are shared. There's parables that actually have teaching in them. As I was studying this, I just could see so clearly that Jesus is speaking to three different kinds of people in a way to convict the very heart of a person who, whether they know they're acting in self-righteousness or whether they do not know, need to be aware. And so um, we're going to look and take a study at that today. <clears throat> I titled this message, The Tragedies of Self-Righteousness. And it is a tragedy. Self-righteousness is, is unfortunate. And I'll get into it for a reason in a minute. But I think this is Jesus's kind of final pushes. You're going to see a, a gut check to anyone who wants to follow Christ, anyone who wants to have righteousness by faith and not necessarily by what we do or the credit system the world gives us to build worth and value and righteousness. And I asked these two questions to myself, so I'll ask it to you when I was writing this message. What do we do? Or how do we determine worth, our worth? Now, I'll hear people say, like, my worth is blah, 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 blah. But their worth is still based in a non-kingdom social construct. But the worth that they have, I never go, well, that doesn't matter. Because some people want to understand and own their worth, and some people have felt so worthless. So we have to separate that a little bit from when we talk about the kingdom and worth in the kingdom. Your personality, your, your love for people, your, um, your even just caring for who you are, those are all really, really good things, but not when we're talking about kingdom worth, and so we can't compare them to each other. We have to put ourselves in the kingdom mentality. So what determines your worth? And I think sometimes that has, in a way, worth has developed this social structure that we have that gives worth to someone or removes worth from someone. But it doesn't seem to be how the kingdom works. We would say, my worth is based on my accomplishments, what I've done, based on how wise I am or how wealthy I may be, or my social circles I travel in. This speaks of my worth, maybe what we wear by Drive, own, can speak to our worth or a projection of our worth. But not in the kingdom necessarily. So we have to answer this hard question. And I asked this of myself as I was writing this message. What determines worth to you? 
And that helps me frame things a little differently to ask the second question is, how do we determine righteousness? Do we mix in the world's way of worth in with what is righteous? Right? So we have to know, what is righteousness? If we're not careful, we will then adopt some of the principles of which Christ came to rescue us from and bring it into righteousness. And we would probably say it in ways of like a works-based salvation or someone who is self-righteous or some would say a hypocrite. But so Jesus is pushing on something that is really hard for people to hear. Because all they know is a system that rewards worth and, and, and rightness in a specific way, most likely developed by humans. And God on earth is saying, there's a different way, and worth is given differently. We would say maybe righteousness, we could say it's our discipline, it's good decisions, it's knowing knowledge of the Bible, and we would say our generosity would make us more righteous, or church attendance, or participation in church or kindness towards others, we would say that, 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 that makes me a righteous person, but not in the economy of God. And, and this is probably why this has to be spoken so strongly, because I think I would be doing a disservice to what Jesus is teaching if I didn't, is that those things are manifestations of someone who values the righteousness that God gave them through faith. They manifest from that. They're callings to kingdom practice, but they are not righteousness. Righteousness, I believe, and this is my interpretation of what I believe Jesus is saying here, which is Jesus says clearly in chapters 13 through 15, our worth is determined by what God sees in you. If you ever question your worth, your value, you just have to know what God sees you as. More than any other element around you, it's your worth to him should elevate your self-esteem is that God so loved you that he gave his only son, that God adopted you as his child. God wants you to call him father. Your worth is huge to God. And I think Jesus is also saying that Jesus ultimately says our righteousness is in God's hands alone. I think that's very hard for people, that my righteousness, rightness before God is in his hands alone. Well, then otherwise you could do something to get that righteousness. And so it's a very clear line Christ is drawing for followers is that we must put our rightness or righteousness in God's hands. Self-righteousness is actually counter counterproductive to what Christ is teaching. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right before God. He does that. All the great practices that we do that are good things to do in Christian living are a manifestation of the appreciation of that righteousness that God gave you. Grace, his love, his salvation. Self-righteousness is a tricky problem to spot, though. Ooh, it's tough. It's, it's wrong Self-righteousness is this. It, it, it's, it's wrong in behavior, but it seems so right in when we're doing it. Did you know that you can do good in sin in doing good? Did you know that? 
You can serve someone and love on someone, and their effect would feel that it's good, but why you're doing it might be sinful as far as our pride or arrogance. So we can do good in sin. So we have to realize that self-righteousness is very tricky, and sometimes we ourselves can't even spot it within ourselves. I love street magic, <clears throat> okay? Not here to talk about magic in church, but it's just sleight of hand. I love it when someone can do a card trick, and I'm like, is magic real? You know what I mean? That's what they, and they always tell you, like, this is a trick. Don't worry. How did that card get in that apple? Like, it's just these strange things. Every time, I'm always fooled every time it happens. And I can't, I, I have this little element of, like, how did I not see it? And I'll slow the video down, and I'll watch it, and I'll just be like, I, don't, I, can't, I can't see it. I can't. I can't. Self-righteousness is, is, is sleight of hand. I believe, of sin. It is a sleight of hand. You may not see it so clearly, but it is a sleight of hand. I would say that it is a, the most dangerous sin. There are overt sins that are just very overt. Even culture deems them as unhealthy, and we would call them sin. But then the self-righteousness, it's a sleight of hand. We have to be aware. We have to... Um, Guard our heart, the Bible says. We have to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. We have to be looking out, and that talks about people as wolves in sheep clothing, but I believe that self-righteousness is a wolf in sheep's clothing that will pull us away from the very work of grace that God has done, and we will work off of the world system to build righteousness, and it doesn't work, and that's why Christ came to destroy that system and build the kingdom. So we're looking at Luke chapter 13 through 15, just to, to catch up to where we're going to be at. It begins with Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was set aside and there were very strict conditions religiously, if you, if you know this, uh, uh, this biblical era of where you, you couldn't do a lot of work, you had to rest and it's a very good practice because we know we can work seven days a week with our mind on something else and not taking just a day to go, wow, God, you are great. I'm going to enjoy everything that you have provided, and I'm going to worship you with my love for what you've done and who you are. But then these rules began to get really, really strict, and so, so much so that the system was actually so strict that it, they were offended when Jesus healed a woman who was oppressed a big portion of her life on the Sabbath. And actually, they say this when you read it. They say, there's six other days a week, Jesus, you could have done this. <laughs> can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? This is for God, but they didn't see the kingdom moving right in front of them, that God is in redemption and healing and remaking and renewing, and they just missed it. And they said, based on our self-righteousness, this is wrong what you're doing. And so Jesus then replies back in a way that upends their entire system in one very short statement. He uses this analogy of a narrow door because somebody says, Jesus, so there's probably not going to be a lot of people in the kingdom, right? A few of us will make it. Now, I guarantee, based on where Jesus begins to talk, that this is a self-righteous person saying, all of these people aren't going to make it, right? It's just us goodies. And he says this term, yes, there's a narrow door. 
And they're going, oh, good, a narrow door. Okay, so first class first, off like off the Titanic, and everybody on third deck will not make it, okay, right? They're thinking this, right? I'm going first. And this is what he does. He up, upends the entire system. And he says, actually, and he's a famous statement, the last actually will be first. And he, he broke the system with that statement of any who thought that they could justify their way in to the kingdom. And Jesus says, we work by different rules here in the kingdom economy. And so we'll jump to chapter 14, and Jesus, I think, gives three very convicting and convincing parables that reveal self-righteousness. And it will be very helpful for us because it's so covert. It's the sniper on the building, self-righteousness. And you will not know it until you're in it yourself. So you have to be very aware. Evaluate yourself. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We have to renew our mind to a way of thinking, to a different way, which is the kingdom's way. We have to be sharp and ready because I think self-righteousness is a corruption from within. It thinks that you think it's your friend, and it's not. So there's these three guests that Jesus talked about, and we'll talk about the first one, which is the presumptive guest. The guest, um, I would say, the presumptive guest is the person who walks in and they already know they're going to be sitting at the best seat. Or the person, oof, who when you're going on a road trip, they automatically get in the front seat and offer it to no one else. They perpetually, in perpetuity, call shotgun. How is that? They must deserve it. It's, if you do that, I'm... Joking. I mean, some people. <laughs> I've done it. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's the, what they don't understand is the, the presumptive guest, and we're talking about the guest into God's house, is the presumptive guest doesn't understand that God's place uh, of honor awaits the humble. It awaits the one who thinks last, first. To serve and not to be served. And humility versus self-honoring and self-righteousness. That their assumption is going to be one of, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take the seat in the back. And not instantly go to the place of honor. Luke 14, 7 uh, through 11. And starting in verse 7, he says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. Um, he noticed how they chose a place of honor. Now Jesus is at a dinner party. And we should love this because this whole message is about Jesus eating food, and it's about food, and it's about dinner, it's about hospitality, it's about manners. And he said, when he noticed how they chose the place of honor, he's watching the way the social construct works. He's watching the way that people have just automatically given into this system of who deserves what and who doesn't. And he says, when you, are, when you invite someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you uh, be invited by him, the person who's throwing this party. Now, Jesus does not originally come up with this. He borrows it from, I think, ultimately a proverb, and we'll read it in a minute. But he's pointing out something. Never, self-righteousness will do this, this presumption that I deserve more. And so he is saying, when someone comes in, don't 
go to that place of honor, it might not work out so well, especially in the kingdom on those types of assumptions. James 4, 6 says this, and obviously we know this humility uh, portion of the gospel and righteous living is, uh, is taking flight because James is writing about this post-Christ death and resurrection. He says in verse 4, 6, but he who gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So even in the manner, if you don't want God to oppose you, then do not walk in arrogance and pride or self-righteousness. He will oppose it and he will honor humility and he will elevate that. I had a kid volunteering one time. It's, I probably have shared this before, but it was one of the most shocking cases of someone volunteering. And it was in youth ministry in Michigan. And he was one of the, you know, sometimes talent will get you places that sometimes in, I, I think you shouldn't be. <laughs> but we love talent. And I remember this kid, he came up and he said, hey, I want to volunteer. He's charismatic. He, he, he like has a couple local hit songs and he was a great MC at parties and he had become a Christian and he said, hey man, I want to help. I want to help. And I was like, oh, absolutely. And he's like, um, man, you know what I think I'd really be good is emceeing the services, making sure that I'm doing the announcements and I'm kind of up there and I could be up there with you too. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't need that. Oh, no. I don't think that's where I'm going to be best used. And I was like, well, I, I think we need stuff cleaned up. I think we're good on the other area. He said, I don't think this is for me. And then he left. And I thought, wow. It was sad for me because he missed out on an incredible opportunity. He probably would have been on stage at some point. I'm sure God promotes that, but he doesn't promote pride. And I can't be a part of promoting pride and arrogance. It has to be humility. Verse 9, and it goes on to say, And he who invited you, meaning, let's just look at it in the way Jesus is saying it, God invited you. Both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, the person who assumed they should be somewhere. How embarrassing when the host says, mm, give your place to the person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. I'm imagining like it's the walk of shame of like, and everyone's like, God doesn't want this for us. He doesn't want us to take this walk of shame to the lowest place. He says, but when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. Here's the Proverbs where Jesus uses this example. It's in Proverbs 25, 6. This is a wisdom principle. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence and stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of the noble. God wants a humble heart. We must be careful in when we're dealing with self-righteousness to be presumptive. God's inviting you as a guest. Let's not assume that because of who we are and what we've done that we'll get a seat of honor. What gets us the place is humility. Humility like Christ displayed. And then verse 11, we know this very well. It goes on to finish. For everyone who exalts themselves or himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, self-righteousness is pride. And we clearly know that God actively demotes it. And we don't want to be demoted by God. 
I don't want to do anything that God is like, you know what, I'm going to, to, to oppose that. I don't want to be on the other end of God stopping me. I want to be in his promotion. And he seems to reject any offering of self-righteousness. It's, it's a stench, I believe, to God. It becomes a great offense because it says that I can save myself. I can make myself right. And we do not have righteousness by faith that way. It's a, it's a beautiful thing Jesus is introducing that gives freedom and hope to all of us. But we must, we must not abuse that and lose sight of it. God desires, believe it or not, to actually honor you. He says, I want, I want, you to, I want to honor you. I want to bring you up to the seat. But if you presume too much and you believe that you are righteous by yourself, then you will not. I have a question on this one. Where do you see yourself at the table when you think about sitting down at the table and God is at the well done, good and faithful servant, or maybe even now, where do you see yourself at the table? How do you enter that room? It's a good question to ask. I think I have some natural things where I'm like, well, of course I'm going to want to be as close to God as possible. <laughs> like I'm going to want to, you know, I, I, I mean, yes, I know there's a long line here, but I want to try to get to the front of the line first, like at an Apple store. I want to be there. I'll camp overnight, so I'll make sure I get the best spot. But where do you see yourself? I think it's a good thing to just evaluate yourself, not presume too much. Uh, second parable Jesus tells, these are all consecutive, is the social creditor. And I believe these are all very relatable to each one of us, and they still translate today. But the social creditor, and I could not think of another term other than to say it this way. It's the person who, who does currency and social credit, meaning that I did that for you, you do it for me, and then there's a currency within the people they collect around their lives that elevate their status. But we forget, and the social creditor forgets that God picked the unjust and he justified them. They did not justify themselves who were sitting at God's table. He justified them. The social creditor lose sight, loses sight of that and gets caught up and adopts the principles that Jesus, the, the world system that Jesus came to turn upside down and brings them into the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, this does not work in the kingdom. And I would hate for anyone to be mistaken that they do. Luke 4, 14, starting at verse 12, he said also to the man who invited him, being at this table, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest you have also invited, uh, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid, keyword. This has a lot of dynamics happening here when it comes to grace, forgiveness, mercy, right? Righteous, just, but being repaid for what you've done. There's a social credit score that we're, we're keeping with each other, and the more I do, and then that person pays me back, and, but that's not how the kingdom works because everything comes from God. There is no trading. If I can't invite people for that way, if I don't invite people to my party in a way, and I know Jesus is using this as in the analogy of, of necessarily kingdom-wide overall, and there's a lot of principles happening here, but why don't we just look at it in a relatable way? If I can't invite people that, you know, my rich neighbors, 
right? If I can't invite my relatives, if I can't invite the people I enjoy, then why have a party? Then I think that that's what Christ is questioning us on of what we're doing. If I can't, mm, I'll be careful. If I can't be a church with the people I like and the people I want to be around, if I can't be in these social circles in my Christian life, that actually I just, I relax around these people. If I'm not ever uncomfortable, why are we doing it? I think it's a hard question to ask. Are we stepping outside of the reaching to people who cannot pay us back? He's trying to break the motive cycle here in this Verse 13, it says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, not repaid, blessed. It's a very different thing because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's a time this is looking forward or there's a, a, a God's people and they've been justified and to just do things for ourselves or to just invite those who are likable, acceptable into our lives, into our sphere or into the kingdom, then I would hate to miss the resurrection of the just by acting that way and by living that way. There's an interesting show, don't judge me even though you're going to judge me, so... There's a, a reality show um, I watch, and I like them um, because they're weird and fun. And uh, There's one called Love is Blind. It's on Netflix. Don't do it to me. I hear it already. I w was interested in Love is Blind because I was watching a social experiment years ago where they were setting up a booth where you could talk to someone. You didn't know, you couldn't see them, but you could hear their story. You could talk to them and you could get to know them without ever seeing them. This was happening in L.A. And I thought, that's a really cool thing because when they met each other, they were shocked when they saw each other. One was much older. One, one looked completely different. One dressed completely different and maybe would have never spoken to each other. So this show, Love is Blind, is this way, where they, they found that they, the world has become too, um, what is it, looks-based. And so they said, what happens if we put people in two different rooms and all they can hear is each other's voice? Will they actually, could they fall in love? And I thought, that's a fascinating concept of not letting what we judge the world and each other by and just by who we are. I think in a much greater, greater way, Jesus is saying, we must have this heart. When we see people, we must see who they are. Or we might miss what the kingdom is doing in itself. Matthew 11, 20, uh, 28 says this, and Jesus ultimately is saying this, is that <laughs> when we think about all the, 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 he says, the outcasts of society, you should invite them we cannot forget Matthew 28, or eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know who is weary, lost, blind, can't see, can't hear, outcast? Well, we know the us. Us. 
So when God throws a dinner party, he doesn't invite those who deserve it. He invites those who don't. And you're at the dinner party. We cannot lose sight of this is how we started our salvation. You were someone who never had a chance. You were outside the city gates. And God let you in. It brought you in. We can never lose sight that that's the very heart of God. And when Jesus says, come to me, all who are suffering, that was all of us. We had a spiritual condition that was death. And he gave us life. I think to God, we are all on that list of undesirable guests that he invited to the party. And he said, come sit. You know, it's, it's, it's our, I think it's a great honor ultimately to your father. If you are a father or have had a father, that you emulate that father for the goodness that's what's inside of them. When, they, when someone says, you, you sound just like your dad, or you sound just like your mom. And, it, and I mean, the, the child may be like, ew, right? But, but the parent might be like, oh, that's great. Or when the child themselves said, I value this thing about my parents so much, I want to emulate that. I want to live like that. It's a great honor to the kind of parent that you are. We cannot lose sight of that when we become believers that all of a sudden now we're on the inside and those lame and terrible and those blind and deaf and the outcasts of society, let's make sure they don't come in. I think it's a great tragedy. I think my question with this parable is this, that I ask myself and I'd ask that you ask yourself, is do we play the social credit role sometimes? Are we just wanting to make sure we elevate ourselves or are we looking to those others? Are we seeing people for who God sees them as, as he saw us, and reaching towards them? Or are we just making things nice and great and easy in a way not effective for the kingdom and not reflecting the Father's heart? The very last parable, and I just titled this person as the excuser. So we have the one who presumes too much. And then we have the one who is just working deals and networking and, and, and trying to elevate their status and building their brand, if you will. And then you have the excuser. I think the excuser is someone who doesn't recognize that they need God as much as they do. Doesn't recognize that how the importance of being at the party God is throwing... Maybe through self-righteousness, clearly on this theme Jesus is on. Maybe they think, I'm good, you're inviting me into this God, but you know what, I'm good in my own way here, we're good when he's calling you to something. Self-righteousness can stifle your work in the kingdom. But what could be more important than the party God is throwing and celebrating that we would turn it down? Or would be distracted with something else. Or would be about our own business. What could be more important? And this parable states it in Luke 14, 15 through 24. It says, starting in 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I've learned pretty quick to never make statements around Jesus because then he's got a rather, or a but, right? So I don't know why they're doing it still. I would just close my mouth and pay attention. 
but they want to, in a way, we can see self-righteousness happening here. We can see a deception or maybe even just a cluelessness of what Christ is really trying to bring here in his teaching. And so he says, but he said to him, a man once had a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready uh, now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. I don't know if you've ever planned a huge party and wanted to celebrate and maybe even celebrate those who were coming, but no one or very few people came, and, and it was like, wow, everyone just kind of said, I'm washing my hair tonight. My cat's sick. Who knows? I think that at the end of the day, this is what's happening. God's saying, I've invited so many, and they're not coming. <laughs> They're missing what's in front of them. They're caught about other things. They might just be thinking the religious practice is what's saving them, but I'm inviting them into something so much greater. It says, he first said to them, uh, I have, uh, sorry, this is how the excuses began. There's two that are ridiculous, and there's one that's like, I don't know, maybe, but still, the priority is off. But they all began to make excuses, and the first said to them, I have bought a field, and I must go, and I have to see that field. Now, we might be like, well, that's responsible. He's got to go check that field and make sure. That's ridiculous. It's offensive. I'm about other things, God. And the other one, uh, and they asked, please, ex may I be excused? And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I have to go examine them because I bought them. I got to make sure and check and make sure they're good for breeding and making sure they'll be able to pull things. And it's only responsible, God. I'm busy with other things. It's the right thing to do, right? Then he goes on to say, um, please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, that seems more right Now, there could be problems at home. She ain't letting them out of the house. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a really strange statement. I think most people would read this and go, you know, when you marry someone at that time, you, you, you dedicated a very big chunk of, of the first year of your life of becoming acquainted with your spouse and ultimately establishing that life. So it seems like it's a good excuse, but even in that moment, he's saying, why didn't you come? And he just doesn't say, may I be excused? He says, I'm not coming. It says, then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said to him, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there's still more room. And he compelled people in the street to come in, that my house may be filled. Now, we don't know this, but in this culture, in that time, in this city, or in the surrounding cities, is that the poor, the crippled, the lame, they were not allowed to sleep within the city gates and the city walls. They had to be outside at night. 
because the people on the inside did not want them coming in and causing any problems and didn't want them around, so they kept them on the outside. They were allowed to come in, but at nighttime they had to go out and sleep outside the walls. And so this is why it must have been shocking and why the only people he could find, because all of his inside people turned him down, and he said, open the gates and let's bring all of them in. Now this might have to do with some of the Gentile inclusion that's happening, and there's this parallel that's happening here with that. But this is also a principle, I think, is saying that none of the insiders seem to think this is important, the people who have been around. And let's go to those who would love this party. And he does. And they come. And can you imagine sitting down and be like, who wouldn't want to be here? This is what they're doing. Food! We're in! We've never been in here at night. It's really nice. <laughs> He's pushing something really strong here that we all should pay attention to when we come to excuse ourselves from the very beauty and the celebration God has invited us all into big because we think we're good. And he says, And the master said to his servants, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel all the people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste the banquet. Now this is where the hard truth comes in. This is why we have to be so in tune about self-justification and self-righteousness. This is why I have to be so in tune with fighting the system that, that, that we maybe came out of, that Christ rescued us out of, and invading our faith and becoming a part of our faith. We have to fight it. The battlefield, I think, I believe, is absolutely in the heart and mind. And Christ is saying 100% dependent on God, 100% justified by God, 100% righteousness through Christ and faith in Christ. That's it. We'll have to watch out for it because self-righteousness is a sleight of hand and you must catch yourself. I, I, I have been self-righteous at times. I have felt good about my life with God because I was doing good things. I remember early on, especially, when I go before God, I'd be like, okay, God, here's all the reasons why I need to repent and ask for forgiveness, and, I, I, and, I, and, and I've done some better things before I can even pray to you, self-righteousness. We have to be careful we don't bring in that system that God is overturning into our faith. I think the cost of short-sighted priorities like these people who excuse themselves from the party, it's more than they probably wanted to pay. And it's more than you want to pay. God's invited us to his banquet, a celebration. We should be there. He wants you to come. And he wants to honor you there. But he'll honor somebody. I want to be there. God's inviting us to enter and eat, but we enter his way. We cannot show up with all the reasons of why we deserve to be there. It's, it's his way of why he thinks you should be there. And we get a clear picture that it's through humility and justification by faith and not by works. And that you've helped him also overturn the system that he had to come save us from. And my last question for this is, will the invitation that God has given you and has given you move everything for you? As soon as the invitation comes, all plans change. Or 
will you excuse yourself from the invitation because it's not as important? But I don't think it's a cost we want to pay. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be aware to not get caught up and become a self-righteous person. And thank goodness that God came and broke us free from that. But we need to depend on him in faith and we must be careful not to get caught up in it. It hinders the kingdom's work and it hinders your experience and your faith and the banquet. We're going to take communion right now and I think it's a a good way to probably end this message because this communion table, as we've said before, is it's, it's neutral because this is a, a reflection. It resembles or it's a parable even in a way, an analogy that says this is exactly what my life is. It's me completely dependent on you, the work you did on the cross, Christ, and the blood that you shed for my sake. I can do nothing. So I celebrate it in this way and I honor you for the work that was done because before this I was blind, I was lost, but now I'm found and I can see. None of us deserve to be here at this table. You were invited. And anytime we approach something like communion, remember the heart of the person going humility and appreciation and gratitude and I'm just happy to be here. Because I was lost and I was blind and I, now I see. But it's a great moment too where we come together and look at each other across the room and it's almost like that social experiment where I don't see you for what I would presume that you are. I see you for the work that's been done right here. And that connects us and lets me see who you are and how God sees you too. And that changes everything for me. So let's pray, and then we'll um, take communion. You can come down at any time during worship and um, head back to your seat and take it um, at any time during the worship song, and then we'll close. God, we love you, and we thank you. Jesus, thank you that you never held back the truth of the kingdom. You were not about playing games, that's for sure. And we thank you for not just your beautiful and wonder, wonderful examples of healing those in the most taboo times, but God, Christ, that you shared the truth of the kingdom and you didn't parse words and you didn't uh, 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 um, allow any kind of uh, just loosening of what is the truth, God. You spoke the truth. You let us know. You informed us, God. And let us be those who respond knowing the truth and acting in that. I pray for our church. I pray for everyone here, God. I pray for a revelation of humility in our faith practice and how we see you, God, in grace and forgiveness and mercy and dependence and how we see others. And God, I just pray for our church as we walk out today that every one of us can tiptoe or be, or be uh, uh, tricked by self-righteousness. God, help us be aware, in tune with the Spirit, speaking truth to us so we root out any of that offensive work. And that we purely just rely on you, God, and we find our righteousness through you. And God, any of us who have been struggling thinking, man, I don't belong at the table. 
I'm just uh, somebody who's, I, I feel like that person who's been the lame and the cripple outside the city walls, the pariah, the ones who are the outs. God, I, we pray for anyone who has felt like that, God, that maybe today they can see that they are invited to the table, God, that they see worth and value and they are right and justified by you, God, that they stand on equal ground. And God, I just pray that you really inspire them, God, and give them a revelation of who you are to them. And your worth, God, is all that matters. Everything else is going to pass away. But at the end of the day, it's your worth. And that's what we rest in, live in, have life in. And God, find our confidence and security in. So God, I just thank you. I love you. You are amazing. And as we take communion today, God, bring us that reminder today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand up and join.